This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Welcome to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we are talking about the intersection between poetry, chaplaincy, and hospice. And with us we have Alexandra Donovan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, Could you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, thank you. I'm a poet and a chaplain. I work in both hospice and the hospital context currently. So I I find that poetry is both my strongest spiritual practice as well as, honestly, one of my strongest spiritual traditions. I've recently begun to realize that it's as much my tradition as the Episcopal Church is my tradition. It's it's both a place where I find grounding and a place where I find expression and forerunners, if you will. Um, so it's it's a place where I turn to to help me in my chaplaincy work, but it's also a place that I bring my chaplaincy work to unpack it and to give it over, if you will. Saul sent uh, uh, sent me one of your poems. And uh, if this is the work that you do, and this is how it handles, and this is such a, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful spiritual practice, which I find so intriguing, just uh, this whole situation that you're, you're doing, because I've never heard of it before, number one. He sent me, uh, it's called Serious Question. I'm sure you remember that one. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it's ruminating in my mind, and I know that's it's incredible for me because everything seems to come in and out in a heartbeat. Where do you, I don't know if we need to get in this right now, but I'm just, what, what, how did that become you? That, well, that poem, like most poems that end up going somewhere was born out of an urgent need. It was after a shift at the hospital I was at at the time in Los Angeles. And I just, like I say in the poem, I truly couldn't stop driving. I couldn't stop thinking about this, this mother in the ICU with her daughter that was dying of a, dying of a drug overdose. And I couldn't, there was just something so compelling and beautiful as much as it was tragic about the interaction. And I needed poetry to help me work, work that out. It, it was a place that I could put this memory where beauty and pain could kind of live together so that I could not instead of being traumatized by what was so difficult, I could actually create something that was as beautiful as it as it felt to witness such beautiful love in the midst of such pain. And so that that was one of my I wrote that in one sitting just at the end of the shift because I I needed it. Oh wow, <laughs> that's in, that's incredible. Why the title? Serious questions. <laughs> um, it it was. It's partly humorous. I can pull that one up, actually. It, it's a line from the poem itself, and it seemed to capture what, what is my, my question that arises from the poem. So like we do in CPE, 
we find that out of a case study, out of a verbatim, there's a question that seems to bubble up. And I find the same is true in poetry. And the question that came out, if I were if this poem were verbatim, mm-hmm. the question would be, when and how much do we cry in front of our patients, their families? When and how much is it appropriate to let our own floodwaters pour out? And there's no real answer to that, but the question gets at something deep about how how emotionally connected we are and how strong or not strong we we stand in in the face of such pain and beauty. And I mean, that's an, an incredible question to ask, especially when you're talking about we can be in such a brief moment with families, but still find the deep meaning of what's going on around us. Right. And I mean, to bring that question up through your poetry is just very, very powerful. Uh, I love the beginning of it when you start talking about God. Uh, that was, you know, does God wear mascara? I mean, <laughs> I think that, you know, that, that brings it all of a sudden, you, you, you grabs you and it holds on to you. And then you read the whole thing and it's like, uh, is God's, is, is God's mascara beginning getting messed up because of tears? Right. And I, I think absolutely it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to read that one? <laughs> I, I, I would like to hear it from your mouth. Yes. Sure. All right. Serious question. What I want to know is when God visits a hospital, does she wear mascara? It's a serious question. Today, after my shift, I keep driving past the house, keep straight on into the mountains of San Gabriel. The sunset is behind me, and I want to see it, but don't turn around. I pass a couple embracing at a lookout point along the canyon rim. I can't tell if they are laughing or kissing or crying. All I know is they are holding each other as if to keep from falling. I keep driving until I get to the dam. I always love seeing it the way the water has marked the stone with rivulets of rust, the way even our attempts to hold back the force of water are evidence of our failure to do so. But I don't get up this way too often. On my drive back down, I roll down the left window and let my hand cup the wind, even when it becomes so cold my fingers ache. I am grateful for anything to hold, even hurt. My hair whips my eyes and it is dark out. The sunset is now a dark orange line, flat and thin. I think of you lying there, eyes shut, tubes going in and out, your mind dark, but your ears possibly open. Your mother takes your hand. She wishes you hadn't done it, but she would stand with you through anything now, even death. A blackbird crosses the air in front of me. When God visits a hospital, does she wait or not? to let the Black River pour down the face of all the earth. Man. <laughs> Powerful stuff. Take my breath away. Powerful. Wow. Thank you. So how's you read it? What are you feeling? I, I get chills. <laughs> um, poetry feels like this life that is apart from even the poet. And I sometimes will have lines of my own poems, just like lines of other people's poems, come to me in a time of need, and I'll forget that I wrote them. And it's like they get a life of their own. So I still get chills, especially you know, remembering the emotion of the experience, but also the beauty of it that sometimes I can't see until I've written it out. 
What happened to that patient? I don't always know. That uh-huh. we in chaplaincy work, especially at a hospital. In hospice, you know, mm. you you follow the patient, but in the hospital, you you hand over the work, and sometimes you need a place to go because you've handed over the patient, and it, yet that patient's still with you, mm. and you need a safe space, whether that's prayer or an altar or a poem. You need a place to go with that. I'm always uh, intrigued by poets like you. Uh, Give us a little background. Where did you grow up and at what age did you encounter poetry to be so <laughs> significant in your life? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Southern California and I have been writing poetry since I can remember. I The, <laughs> the first poem I remember writing and being so proud of was about a desert hairy scorpion. And uh, so I think I was intrigued about the fact that the the, the, women, the woman kills the male and eats it. And I thought this was the funniest, uh, most gruesome fact. And my, my little, let's see, I was probably in fourth grade. Mm. And I just found the poem the other day. I've still got it. And I think even at that age, I was trying to work out the complexity of the world. It's both cruel and funny and beautiful. And, you know, <laughs> a poem was a place that could hold all those things. And so I've, I've written poetry most of my life, but it was, it was really a hobby. It was even a distraction during my undergraduate years. It was the thing I did when I didn't want to do my other work, which was religious studies. <laughs> so <laughs> that'll, that'll tell you where my heart was. It was with religious studies too. I was actually studying religious poetry in, in some of my classes, but poems were my decompression space. And it wasn't until the, until I lost my mom to cancer that I, I became so, so unmoored, so um, not drifting spiritually, but just I began to reconsider all of my foundations, which was a really healthy place to be in, but it was this kind of nebulous drifting space for a while, and poetry was my lifeline. And out of that time of grief, which still informs my work today, I I kind of latched on to poetry. That's what I became when I began my my master's program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And that was that was my lifeline through that time. And it continues to be a place that I work out grief and that now I help others work out their grief. By writing poetry? Sometimes by writing poetry, sometimes by giving poetry, sometimes I don't bring poetry into the context of, I, so I'm a bereavement counselor as well as a chaplain. Oh, okay. um, I've done writing, writing to heal workshops, which are, I think, I mean, clearly for me, this is the place where I go to work out grief, trauma, whatever it is. And it's, I love running workshops for people that don't think that they've got writing in them, but mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when we're young, when we're kids, we, we don't think we're not artists. We don't think we're not creatives. And poetry is the same way. People, a lot of people have talked themselves out of it. And we're taught in, from an early age, we're taught that poetry is this complex puzzle that can only be understood a certain way. And if you, if you find the right key, you might unlock the riddle. And some poems certainly are like that, but most, most are just outpourings of the soul. And I think it's such a shame that we have made poetry so far removed from most of us. So I love teaching writing to heal workshops that 
help people write a poem that that allows them to access their psyche in a different way. Creative work, art lets us access our our pain in a way that's actually quite a bit safer. How do you introduce this to your hospice patients? I mean, it's a, a yeah. it would be an incredible experience, I would think, for some of some willing participant to work with you on this as you are visiting with them. Right, right. I typically don't do writing workshops with my hospice patients. It's more often that it's with their bereaved family members that Mm -hmm. if they want to come to a writing workshop. But I certainly bring in poetry itself. And depending on the person, right, depending on what feels appropriate to them, we'll, we'll read poetry at the bedside. But I love the idea of incorporating writing into end-of-life care from the patient that could create uh-huh. something that gets passed on to their family members or just lets them work something through. Um, we, I don't think I've had anyone write with me, but I've, I've, I've had a, a patient who loves Irish literature. He's, he's still with us. And, and so I would bring in Seamus Heaney poems, and mm-hmm. that, was, that was our shared love language. He was, he was studying to become a Catholic priest and left that path a long time ago, not, not very religious anymore. But he essentially grew up in a library. And I was talking <laughs> with him, when, and I, I said, um, and, and now he's a, he's a published writer. And I, I said at one point, you know, the way you talk about books in your library— it sounds like that was your church. And he said, absolutely. And I said, I said, really, in a sense, you did become a priest. And he just smiled at me and he said, I've always felt that way. And it was, it was so neat to, to witness his priesthood in his church of books and literature and poetry and to, have a, to honor him in that right. way. Yeah. I mean, I just was wondering as, uh, you know, you're— being with your, being a presence with your patients, if there's something that all of a sudden you feel that, uh, you feel that they need that they that would would help them overcome some sort of uh, unhappiness, discomfort, uh, maybe yeah. a joy. I don't. I mean, I just, yeah. I, I just see this as a wonderful tool to yeah. uh, to interact with your patient. And even though we may not sit and write a poem together. Right. I truly believe every every chaplaincy encounter, every patient encounter is a poem. Okay. Because we we work on metaphor. We show up and we create, we co-create together in that interaction. You you give me your presenting metaphors, we work with them to figure out what's underneath those, and we find out what the poem is really saying. Mm-hmm. Every poem we talk about in poetry structure, there's a trigger and a turn. The trigger is the presenting issue the presenting question, the presenting problem. And usually somewhere throughout the course of the poem, you find out, ah, we were never just writing about a sunset with an orange line. It was actually, you're actually thinking about the, the heart flatlining or the tubes, right? Something bigger, some, some other issue has presented itself. Um, and, and I think that any chaplaincy encounter is the same, that you might, you might tell me that you're worried about um, wh- whatever it is, right? But through the course of our conversation, we'll usually get somewhere much deeper. 
And so mm-hmm. the opening metaphors allow us to have a deeper revelation. So truly, I think every every encounter like that is its own poem. I mean, I'm beginning to see your 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 view on that because it's uh, uh, as much as you are so in tune with that ability. I am so distant, <laughs> or I feel like I am so distant, <laughs> and I feel like I. I mean, I I I, I just. You know, all of the metaphors and all of the things that you just even just talked about now. I mean, I see them. I understand them. I just don't know how to write it down. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah, poetry was spoken word at the beginning. We don't have right, to. Right, exactly. We don't have to write, don't it, have to write it down, yeah. exactly. Nope. Yeah. I just find this incredible. I'm afraid I have to excuse myself, and I'm very, I'm very sorry that I have to do this because I hope that Saul does not get enough of this stuff, and he has to do this again, okay? <laughs> that's a, I love it. That, that's, that's a bad thing on my part, but, I mean, I am just so honored to have uh, met you. Uh, and uh, where is your your poems uh, published? Um, I've just got the one chapbook so far. It's called Mother Stump. And if you go to my website, amdonovan.com, you can find more. Okay. I might have to do that. Thank you so much. <laughs> it was so great to meet you. Thank oh, you. Oh, th- Alexandra, I mean, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you so much. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. This is Sol Ebem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Um, Alex, um, in your introduction, you equated your tradition of poetry to your Episcopal faith tradition. Could you explain more about that? Sure. Both are chosen traditions for me. I wasn't born into the Episcopal Church, but it's been a a home that has welcomed me. It's a place where I can bring all of my humanity and all of my faith. And I have really good companions and really good mentors. And poetry is the same. It's a place where all of me is welcome. And it's it's a it's mine because I wanted it to be that tradition. Mm. So it's yeah, it's also a place where I have really good friends and really good mentors, and it's truly a spiritual community of people using art to ask hard questions about life and leaning into that art, that art with, with faith. With faith, it takes quite a bit of faith to create. There's so much self-doubt involved, mm-hmm. and there's, yeah, it's both, both are traditions that feed me and that sustain me in different ways, but in ways that often come together. Yeah. In the writing you sent me, you said, um, I have the unusual distinction of being a hospice chaplain who has a master's in poetry rather than divinity. How did mm-hmm. your journey to hospice chaplaincy begin? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I began, I was interested in doing jail ministry and helping with writing writing workshops in the jail. And the the only way I knew to get into jail ministry, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, was to join a CPE program, which was also housed at a hospital, and use um, 
request that the jail be become my placement. And I did get to work with the prison restorative justice movement in the Los Angeles County jails as part of my CPE. And I got to work at the, the hospital, Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. I also got to do part of my placement at a sober living community in Los Animas, Colorado. And this was all before I moved to Colorado. And when we, when we did move out a couple of years ago, the job that I ended up being offered was in hospice. And so I got to experiment with chaplaincy in several contexts before I landed in hospice. But really, truly, I think I was headed towards hospice all along. A lot of this journey began when my mom was on hospice. And just the, the beauty of that experience, as difficult as it was, I think is what I still carry with me into every patient encounter the way that chaplain sat with her and breathed with her in sync and taught me as her, as my mom's daughter to come sit at the bedside and just breathe with my mom in this beautiful time of her passing. And so it's really no surprise that I landed back in hospice, although that's not what I knew I was setting out to do. Yeah. Uh, back on the piece that you emailed me, you wrote these words. You said, when you're a chaplain, people assume many things about you. And I often get called pastor, sister, or less frequently reverend. Though I attend an Episcopal church and have a background in religious studies as well as professional training in pastoral care, these days I find that my identity as a chaplain is more fundamentally rooted in my identity as a poet, as well as the path of the shaman. Can you explain that more? Yeah, yeah. The poet, like the shaman, is someone who stands at the edge of society and looks in, someone who takes a step back to to listen deeply for the needs of a community or to the needs of herself. And that's where I feel I go with my poetry. I've also studied with a shamanic practitioner here in Fort Collins. And I do feel that my, my role is kind of to be that person on the outskirts where you... You don't, um, you don't go to the medicine woman unless you need her, and you never want to need her. And it's kind of the same for any chaplain. You don't really ever want the chaplain until you need the chaplain. And it's this slightly removed perspective that does work, does spiritual work on behalf of the community all the time, but it's not always seen. And the poet similarly works not in isolation, but in the dark hours of the morning and in, in a place of solitude doing spiritual labor on behalf of truly the world, not to make it too grand, but I think every, every poem is, a, is an attempt to take in the hurt of the world and to transform it a little bit, to do a little bit of alchemy there. Mm. So to me, it's, it's very much the work of the shaman. Mm. So from that background, then, how would you define your theology of care? <laughs> That's the big question. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a nutshell, for me personally, Christ is my shaman leading me through the journey of the poem. And in the journey of the poem, uh, like in the journey of life, you you don't come back out the same way you went in. You you go through you go through a portal. And you're changed and you're changed forever. And every poem is a portal like that. Every spiritual mm. experience is a portal or can be if we're open to it like that. So 
that that would be that would be how I would encapsulate my personal theology. Mm. And Christ is that shaman showing me showing me through any patient encounter as well. And using metaphor to guide me, to guide me into a place of co-creation with my patients. Mm. I like what you said about the journey of the poem. That's deep stuff there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because that's uh, a fluid journey. Yes. Yes. Like I, like any prayer is any, any true heartfelt prayer where you, again, you, you may start with a presenting problem or issue or wish. And yet if you're open enough throughout the course of that prayer, another voice starts speaking that is both surprising yet deeply familiar. And in that space, we open ourselves up to hear God, our deepest selves, that other voice that is part of us, but is also somehow bigger than us. And I think every poem that succeeds at what it's trying to do also has that moment of revelation of breaking through where something bigger has just come alongside you. Again, I go back to uh, the writing here. You said, as a chaplain, I enter into the framework of whatever is meaningful to my patients, whatever is providing them with strength, courage, or fear and doubt. And we work from that place in order to create meaningful discussion, ritual, and presence. That's powerful stuff right there. (laughs) Thank you. Ah. Thank you. Reminds me again of my patient that's the, he's the priest of the library. Mm. And that's, we don't talk about God, but we do in just in other words, we use other metaphors to talk about his life and his, his life's purpose and meaning. You know, I had a, of a patient that she was talking that she was so certain that she was going to hell. And if I, put the theology of hell aside for a minute and use hell as a metaphor mm-hmm. that it can't be both. But I, we used that to explore. And I said, tell me about your hell and tell me why you think you're going there. And she ended up telling me about some really deep early trauma. And we got to a really powerful place of naming what had happened to her, why she felt worthless. And it was, a you know, we, and we got to have some good discussion about, do you, do you want me to look into an EMDR therapist for you? You know, some of the really concrete parts of our caregiving. And yet we had used, we had used the spiritual framework that she came from, from her evangelical background mm-hmm. to get to the place of naming her early wounds. And the next time I walked into that room, I didn't have to really, I didn't do anything. I didn't really provide, you know, I'm, I'm not EMDR trauma <laughs> trained. Right. But mm-hmm. The next time I walked into that room, and every visit since, she has been a lot more excited to talk to me about heaven. And I said, tell me what your heaven looks like. And she said, I don't need all that gold. I just need um, a grassy hill and some trees and a nice river and my, my loved ones there. And we would probably have a picnic. And I said, can you hmm. save space for me on that hill? And she said, absolutely, you're, you're there with me. And so there's a way in which the the metaphors of heaven and hell are, are so, um, they're so ripe with what's going on for people. And I can use those to understand what kind of pain are you in and what kind of peace are you in. 
And even though we weren't, we don't talk about poetry in that, in our visits together. But as I walk into that room, the metaphor is what guides me and helps me know her better. And it helps us have shared language around that. And we have some shared metaphors and we have some metaphors that are hers and not mine. And yet we can, we can use those together. Mm. That's powerful. And I think that defines what you said about poetry being your spiritual modality. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. This is Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with Alex. Um, you wrote a powerful poem that I just published on hospicechaplaincy.com, a portrait of a mother and daughter. Could you tell us more about that and then read it? Great, thank you. Yes, this poem happened as I was, I was teaching a poetry workshop at a sober living community in Los Animas, Colorado. And the prompt that I was using for my students was, tell me, write, write me a poem about a photo in your back pocket that you don't, you don't ever share with anyone. This is an image that you carry that might have some shame and might have some embarrassment. It's something that you keep hidden and you, you've never talked to anyone about. So the, the photo in the back pocket is, of course, just an, uh, its own metaphor. But I, you know, as I was teaching this, I decided to, of course, I always, my, my commitment is anytime I ask my students to write a poem, that I always do the prompt myself too, so that I stay authentic to it. I know that it's, it's uh, feeling vibrant. It's feeling like it's relevant in the moment to me emotionally as much as to them. And so I surprised myself. I had never written about this memory before. But it was the it was the photo in my back pocket. It was the thing that I kind of didn't want to think about, mm. needed to think about. And the poem created a safe space for me to do that. So this is po- Portrait of Mother and Daughter. She's standing up, straddling the portable commode, her soft black leggings down around her ankles. I'm wiping her after she is done. And for the first time, I feel how soft and frail she is down there. For the first time, I see how much of her has become thin and soft as bruised petals. The hair is gone here too, as it is from her head and the rest of her. A thing I should have expected, but hadn't thought about. We never talked about this moment. I never asked what shame or pride or love it held for her. But I tell you, I carry no greater memory than this of cleaning and caring for this place where I am from, this bare and honest earth, this old house of passion, now a country cottage, who has begun the slow collapse back into the wild garden of herself, who is showing me even now the path home, my own way forward into soft earth, the wild fertility of ruin. That's powerful. Um, What was going through your mind? as you're writing such a powerful piece like that? Yeah, good question. 
really it was the glimpse of a memory that I wasn't allowing myself to fully enter into because mm. it was, there was some trauma there. There was absolutely grief and heartache there. And yet as I wrote it, I remember the feeling of feeling the beauty and the power of caring for my mother in this most intimate way and reclaiming this, this place that felt shameful and hidden and remembering the beauty of the humanity of, of both that moment, but of everything that she was and everything that she gave me in giving birth to me, in raising me, and the ways that even in her death, especially maybe in her death, she shows me my path. She is my beacon forward. She is a lot of the reason I write. She's a lot of the reason that I am a chaplain. And in, in death, maybe more so than in life, she shows me that it's okay. I can lean into that soft, fragile place in myself. I can become the country cottage collapsing into this wild, unruly garden, that wild fertility. And in some ways, the wild fertility is my grief. It's the place where I was allowed to fall apart. Mm. That was okay. And out of that place of falling apart came my poetry and it came my chaplaincy. And so this, this place of ruin was really the place of rebirth. And um, yeah, I, I think I, I discovered many of those truths. I knew them, but in writing them out, I, I knew them in a different way. It looks like you had a very special relationship with your mother. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. She's still is my best friend and one of my true spiritual guides. What lessons about life has she taught you? Dance. Dance now and often. Mm. And pay attention to all the sweet, silly little things. I remember going on hikes with her and she would stop at every little flower bud and every little fern and every root. She loved roots. And she paid attention to bird calls and types of trees and their leaves. And as a kid, I, I liked being outside with her, but I didn't always appreciate that level of attention. And uh, the poet Mary Oliver talks about poetry. True devotion is an act of attention. It all begins with our, our attention. Mm to the natural world, to ourselves, to God, whatever it is. And uh, my mom taught me how to pay attention, which maybe is my most basic spiritual practice. Mm. And that comes a lot in your work as a chaplain and also a poet. Yeah, you have to pay attention to those tiny details. Mm. So those, little, those little glimmers, the, the uh, flutter of a patient's eyelid, the, the little things that tell you something deeper is happening here in this moment. Pay attention, absolutely. Mm. You, you, you also say that poetry is a place where you go to metabolize your day. Uh, can you break it down for us? <laughs> yes. Um, I remember writing a poem. I had had a, a um, gentleman who was a veteran tell me about this tragic event that he kept replaying in his mind. And I then kept replaying it in my mind. And I couldn't, I, I was experiencing a little bit of secondary trauma there. I didn't know what to do with that. I couldn't, I didn't want to pass on the trauma by just telling my fellow CPE interns or my supervisor, here's this graphic detail. 
it, here you go. Now it's yours too. I, what I did is I wrote a poem and it was like a bomb diffused. Do you I, have, do you have that poem? I don't, I don't, okay. I don't know what that one is, <laughs> uh, which is, I wish I did, but you know, sometimes that's the beauty of it too. It was not about the product. It was just the act of diffusing that bomb was really what, what mattered for me in that moment. And I could share the experience in a way that I don't, I don't carry that graphic detail anymore. So that was one form of metabolizing a trauma. Um, but any, any of my poems really are a, a, a way that I can place something difficult and have, have it become not just palatable, but even beautiful, where I can begin to see the beauty in that experience as well. So when you write it down, um, is that you said uh, when you write it down, does that help you to let go? Or yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. There are certain. It's not every patient encounter that I need to write about, but the ones that haunt you and stick with you. Um, some some of those until I write about it, I can't let it go. It's like it's like by putting it on paper, my brain and my psyche say, okay you won't forget this. And it's not necessarily the difficult ones. Sometimes mm. it's the beautiful ones that I'm holding on to. And I, I don't, there's a part of me that doesn't want to forget. And so by writing it, it's like, I can say, don't worry, it's not going anywhere. You can, you can let go of it. Mm. So just uh, for a little change of pace here, uh, how was the pandemic? How, how are you coping with the pandemic and how has this affected your poetry or your chaplaincy work? I am reading a lot more than I'm writing, partly because writing is reliving in a sense, and we are still living in the pandemic. So there's a way in which I haven't, I've written about the pandemic and about chaplaincy within it. Um, I do have a poem, actually. I could probably find it if you want. Okay. But truly, I'm not, I'm I'm turning to the poetry of John O'Donohue and Jen Richardson quite a bit, almost exclusively. And those I'm I'm going to them for my own strengthening during this time. And I find that I'm handing out po- poems almost like prescriptions recently. I've emailed, <laughs> I've been a lot of my work has been staff support, as much as probably more than uh, patient support and family support. And so I've begun telling my staff. Hey, send, tell me what you need a poem for. I'll send you, I'll find one. And it becomes this beautiful act of channeling on their behalf. What, and I, I don't usually write it. I usually find a poem that seems to fit their need. I just had a friend text me this morning and she said, can you send me a poem for happiness? I said, absolutely. And I've had people say, send me a poem for Advent or send me a poem for sunshine. I need some more sunshine in my life. And so there, the, the, priesthood of poetry comes in as you mm. start um, finding the, the right poem for that person. Part of, part of our job has just been to be okay surviving and letting that be enough. My mom used to say the most spiritual question we can ask ourselves is what is enough? Mm. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately is our productivity is low or it feels thwarted and I can't necessarily see all my patients that I used to see. I have to let enough be enough, let myself be enough. Hmm. 
it's tough to get to that place. <laughs> yes, it is. Because <laughs> we always believe we can do more. I always feel I can do more. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's, I think that's our whole task, in a sense. Let's see, I'm almost there. This is called Nursing Home. I don't want to write about the pandemic. All I want to think about is Monday morning last week, a lifetime ago, coloring with you and your coloring book for much longer than my company should have approved. That morning, I did my usual routine, quick yoga, black coffee, and I called your daughter, who they weren't allowing in to see you. I found you pushing away your crumb cake, close to tears. You asked me not to leave you, so I didn't. I keep cutting myself on kitchen knives, glass, the ice on my windshield, not on purpose, but I admit it's no small relief to bleed to see blood and know its source. Even the cat keeps catching my hand with a stray claw as I toss his lumpy toy mouse again and again to keep him entertained. I stare at the cuts on my hand as I drive through the dust of Strauss Cabin Road, past the quiet ponds and a circling osprey. And I wonder if you notice when I hand you the yellow colored pencil, again, because it's your favorite. I wonder if you notice the places where I'm bleeding or the day itself has sliced me. You must, because at some point, the mother in you looks over at my carefully shaded flowers and exclaims, oh, sweetheart, that is beautiful. I could bask in this yellow morning forever. Then back you turn. Please, one more. What color should I do this one? Please. And I hand you the red. Watch the color spill over every line, every line, every line. That's powerful. What were you feeling? Deep grief. This was the first time I let myself weep about the pandemic, about patients. That was my last time I've ever seen her, this sweet patient that I work with. Mm. And just the grief of her daughter not being able to visit. And I can't, you know, I, it was a three-hour visit of coloring <laughs> in coloring books because that's, that's her love language. And I couldn't leave her because I knew it was the last time. I had a, I had a sense things were closing. And the, the red at the end there was just this sense of just uh, everything pouring out of me, all this grief, all this loss. And... Uh, um, the metaphor of coloring outside the lines and just letting yourself be bereft, I think, mm. was what I needed to let myself feel. And the poem helped me feel it. Mm. Man, you live with uh, such an amazing intensity. <laughs> <laughs> How do you take care of yourself? <laughs> Poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Poetry. Absolutely. It is my self-care. It's uh, huh. It's the... It's how I hold what's intense. It's where I put it in a way that is gentle and lets me hand it over. So poetry, um, exercise, running, getting, getting all that energy out, but definitely poetry. So in, the, in that place of intensity, you also find... A sense of relaxation? Is that what you're saying? I think the poem lets me move from intensity to relaxation. So once I've once I've gotten everything on paper and let it all bubble up, then I can relax because 
I don't need to hold it anymore. So you've given yourself permission to let go after you've written it. Yes, absolutely. It's it's almost like a switch. That's powerful. What are your final thoughts for our listeners? <laughs> Write poetry. Don't be afraid of it. It's it's powerful medicine. And you you I promise you you can write poems. I promise you you can. It's just like praying. It's not easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not. Oh, but you know what? Let me find one more poem for you. Okay. This is by Mary Oliver. It's called Praying. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. Man, that's powerful. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. You're <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely bring you back. This is, um, this is awesome. I love I would your love work. That. Thank you so much. It's great to, great to talk with you. Have blessings. Have a great day. Right back at you. Thank you so much. Hmm. That was Alexandra Donovan. Thank you for listening. Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.